0: Welcome to episode 274 of the Reformed
1: Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcast.
0: Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got a really exciting episode for everybody who's listening. I would say like above average exciting because we're In some ways, going back just a little bit, we're going back into that theology proper. and we're going to talk about God's essence and energies, are they the same thing? Should we accept these as orthodox? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Some of these questions (laughs) we will answer in this particular episode. But before we get to that really, really good stuff, honestly, maybe there's like 75% of the people are like the most... like problematic or inflammatory thing you just said there was about the hot dogs. So we'll just leave that. We'll just leave that right there. But before we move on, let's do a little affirming. Let's do a little denying. Let's go with affirmations first. And I turn it over to you, brother. What are you affirming with?
1: Yes. So this is another one of those. um, God was gracious and gave us a blessing. He didn't have to affirmations. So today after church uh, we record on, on the Lord's day generally. So today after church, uh, I went to the kitchen and I got out some bread and was going to make myself a sandwich. And I pulled out some nice uh, like hard salami and some nice sharp cheddar cheese. Okay. And I thought to myself, you know, it's amazing how when humans started to develop this technology for preserving our food so that we didn't all die of food poisoning, that God allowed us to do it in a way that makes things taste delicious. Wow. So like, it's almost a universal fact that when you take a normal action to make food last longer, that it also makes it taste better. So, I mean, there's not much more to my affirmation than that. I just just (laughs) bit into my salami and cheddar sandwich and was just filled with gratitude for God's provision, not only for the food I was eating, but for the fact that the food that I was eating didn't taste like garbage. It just, it tasted like Mm. amazing, salty goodness in my mouth. So I, I, I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm affirming that God, uh, in his infinite wisdom and graciousness, uh, made it so that when we preserve food, it tastes better rather than like tasting blander or tasting, like, I don't know, making it taste worse. and But, but like we just have to deal with it because that's what we have to do not to die. So, yeah, that's my affirmation. I know there's not a lot to it. It's not overly <laughs> theological. It's not a lot of depth for us to plumb, but I'm thankful. It's good. It's good stuff.
0: I, I kind of feel like there is... Like, I thought we were about to have a whole different episode topic, actually. That's how deep <laughs> I thought that affirmation was because here's why. So, I'm with you. I think... Do you not sometimes think... That among like Christians whom God has regenerated and who have a, a deeper, let's say, appreciation by the power of the Holy Spirit for the things that are spiritual, that sometimes common grace gets like underemphasized.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I mean, think people like... I think people over-theologize it and they yes. think. Because I was yes. having I was actually having an argument with someone the other day who said I was the devil because I I hate God and I'm a liar because I affirm common grace, which wasn't even part of the conversation. Um, common grace is really just a matter of uh, the fact that, like God allows reprobates to enjoy like not dying. like he He allows right. them to take part and derive some sort of pleasure and benefit from his common blessings upon humanity. That's common grace. Like people get overly theological about it, I think, and want to like, oh, it can't be grace because it's not redemptive, and grace is all redemptive. Right, okay, we well, can exactly. have that conversation, but that's not what most people that I've ever talked to are talking about when they talk about common grace. They're just saying God did something that is is pleasurable and enjoyable, and non Christians even get to partake in and gain some temporal benefit and enjoyment from it. That's common grace. But so yeah, I think, I think a lot of times Christians just ignore it. I
0: yeah well or it's kind of this idea it's like a of a it's a lesser quality to some extent I'm totally right. going to grant that but in this particular case it's still deep and wide because really the standard would be just keeping people alive but having right. them be able to enjoy their nourishment and then to be able to preserve that nourishment for future consumption and to your point which I think we we're pretty outspoken about like fermenting things. Yeah. Pickling things, smoking things, like smoking meats, for instance, that kind of (laughs) smoking. That's well, just to clarify, that it's a wonderful common grace that God would allow us to be able to preserve those things. And like you to your point, they wouldn't just be bland or ugly or suboptimal. They actually in some ways are transformed into things that are delicious in new and profound ways. I just think that's some really deep-cut common grace. So I'm totally like, I think we should consider that if there was a counterfactual world in which that didn't exist, it would be pretty darn awful. And we just take yeah. for granted the fact that God has made it this way, but yeah. purposefully. And so we ought to like just relish in that. Relish also delicious and usually pickled.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no like deep theological reason I can think of why food has to taste good at all, like why it has to be pleasurable exactly. to eat food. But then on top of that, there's no good theological deep reason I can think of why preserving something should somehow enhance its taste. And, you know, I can conceive of a world, I mean, there are all sorts of things where like if you preserve something, it loses its vibrancy. Like if you preserve right. a, a photograph, a lot of times it becomes duller, it's not as rich in color that could happen with food where like you go to preserve it and it just loses all its flavor and it. It's nourishing, but it still tastes like sawdust or just has, or tastes like nothing. There's no, there's no texture to it. Um It didn't have to be the way it is, but yet God made it the way it is. And uh, the only thing I can think of is like, he likes to make his creatures enjoy things. Like we're, we're created to glorify God and to enjoy him. And that also means enjoying his marriage. His, Mary, Marius, various blessings on our lives. So yeah, that's it. Good cheddar salami sandwich to the glory of God. <laughs> but also, I mean, I have to
0: note because we're contractually obligated that that is like super reformed the way you put yeah. that forward. This again, this yeah. idea of trying to remind ourselves that all of these gifts, no matter how small we make them are really great, large gifts that God gives us that we ought to enjoy. And in the enjoying, there is a great degree of worship. So yeah, I'm totally with you. We just, yesterday, my wife and I were put together four giant jars of sauerkraut, which are now doing their thing. And again, like we said before, like with some of this preservation stuff. So here's the last thing I'll say. I think it's just wild because I I have thought about this and this could easily become the episode. So we're going to shut it down after this comment. But if you think about how many tastes, how many things that are delicious came by way of a necessary preservation of combining two things like salting meat, smoking meat. Right. Uh, I think of like Indian pale ale, like, you know, adding hops to fermented beverage to preserve it. And now because of the technology we have, we could easily do away with all those things. They're actually no longer necessary in the, in the kind of strict or explicit means, but we still use them because we're like, well, it just tastes amazing. So there's just like so much that God has done for us to help us enjoy his creation And it's okay to enjoy his creation. And I think it's a wonderful blessing that me and my neighbor and other people in my community and all across the world, even those who do not know the Lord, there's such an amazing common grace that they can pick up that sandwich that you just ate and be like, isn't this delicious? And we could be like,
1: yes. And you know why it is? God. Yeah. I feel like there's an apologetics argument in here somewhere. (laughs) Like you sit down at the pub and you're talking to somebody and you're like, have you ever wondered why preserving meat makes it taste better? And they're like, right? oh, I, never, I have never once right? in my life thought about that Yeah, I think there's some ground there I need some like enterprising philosophy graduate student to write a doctoral dissertation on that Make it happen, loved ones yeah, Info at it.
0: reformbrotherhood.com
1: <laughs> I'll publish your dissertation to the website if you want Make it happen I mean, who am I joking? I'm sure somebody has already written that dissertation <laughs> For sure. It's got to be For out sure. there somewhere If you find it, info at reformbrotherhood.com <laughs> Info at
0: reformbrotherhood.com
1: <laughs> Yes. Jesse, what are you affirming today besides our info at reformbrotherhood.com email address, apparently? I'm just going to keep going with this
0: wonderful thread, which we're like teasing out. So I was reading in Galatians recently, and something struck me as like this wonderful balance, and and it brought me back to this. We Remember, we did a whole series on God being just and justifier. We talked about theories of the atonement. And we settled on that being really like the litmus test. That's the paragon of the touchstone. Just and justify. Does the theory explain how God could be those two things? And uh, I came across this passage um, just because God is good to me. And so I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here's the thing that kind of, I saw this again, perhaps with some new eyes because God is good to me. And here's what drew me into this passage anew was I love that what's being said here is, so I think I sometimes have conflated a couple of things and here's where the affirmation comes in. This idea of like curse be anyone who's under the law. So, so that's a statement that's written of course to the Gentiles, the church in Galatia as like a warning, like, yo, watch out. Here's the red flag here. Be careful of this. If you try to come under the law, as your source of some kind of meritorious earnings, it's going to own you. It always owns you. That's how the law works. But here's what blew me away is, in addition to this, is cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. So in other words, the curse comes through not necessarily the law itself, but the not doing of the law. And so then you have this wonderful juxtaposition. So here comes Christ, who actually is actually not cursed under the law because he fulfills Every manner of the law from like not trimming the edges of the beard to wearing tassels to having a heart that is wholly committed in the right way to honoring the law so that there is everything is synchronous. It's all there's all harmony between the outward expression of the law and the inward application of it. So he's not cursed in this way, but we need somebody to be cursed for us. And so he becomes the curse for us by dying on the cross and taking all of the punishment, all the law breaking, which he actually, of course, never actually did. And that's where he becomes the curse. So he is the just one and the justifier all over again, because here he has obeyed the law and his perfection. So he can't be cursed by it, but he needs to be cursed for us because we are the cursed ones. So the father, of course, is transferring all of that blood guilt, all of that shame, all of that punishment, all the sin on his shoulders on the cross, he makes restitution for that while at the same time being the only one, who is under the law and yet has obeyed it perfectly and therefore is blessed by it and through it. So I'm affirming this work of Christ and I would say kind of, it's a holistic but narrow sense. I saw this and I thought, man, we have a great God who comes and does this for us and perfectly synthesizes these two things. It's just like every way you turn it around, it's just brilliant.
1: Yeah, I I, honestly, I don't have anything to add to that. This might be the first time in... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Podcast history, but I, there's just nothing. There's nothing to add to that. God is great all the time. I feel all like I time. just jumped into like a like a nineteen two thousand one like CCM song. But yeah, it, that's that's the gospel right there. I mean that that underscores for me how we can really look at any element of the scripture, any aspect of the scripture, even a even a passage that is so heavy on telling us how far how how Far short we fall that you know cursed is everyone who does not abide by these things. But then look at that and see what our God has done for us to make right. it so we are able to live as though we had fulfilled the law, as though we are the righteous son of God. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about some of that stuff I think today in terms of essence energies and and what we're going to be getting into. But yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good affirmation. The gospel is always good to affirm. Gospel is always good. And that was a
0: great teaser you gave. So let's move into that denial section. What are you denying against?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is another one of those not overly theologically deep denials. I'm just denying like the fact that it's like 20 degrees below zero out right now. It is cold. Like it's, it's bad. It's, uh, I was telling, uh, Ashley, my wife, your sister, uh, this morning that uh, I remember distinctly this little like bit that the newscasters used to always do when I was growing up in Minnesota, when I was a kid, where they would, we had this local news station. And I know a lot of news stations do this, but for whatever reason, it was Channel Five. Um, did this their newscast? They always went outside in the backyard, and it wasn't a studio. It was actually like they would go outside to the backyard to do the the cast, the weather um, broadcast, like the forecast and everything. And I remember at least once a year when it would get really, really cold because in Minnesota. Typically, in like January, you have several, like a week or maybe a week and a half in a row that gets down below zero. And somewhere in there, it gets really, really cold, like 20 degrees below zero air temperature, not wind chill, actual air temperature. And it was the same bit every year. The guy would, he would walk up to the door. He would pour himself a steaming hot cup of coffee. And as he was walking out, he would just set that cup of coffee down on the ledge to the like a ledge past where he was walking and then he would do his little newscast or his little weathercast and it was like you know like a minute and a half two minutes do the temperature forecast all that stuff and then he would walk over to the coffee and he would tip it upside down and a solid block of coffee ice would fall out and he did that every single every single year there was happened at least once I remember it real distinctly and then he would look at the camera and he'd say see kids that's why you have to bundle up because it's that cold and it's that cold. Like it's, it's bad out. Like it was 15 <laughs> degrees below zero air temperature this morning when I woke up to take the dog out and it, the dog's doing that thing where it's like trying to keep, trying to keep all of its paws off the ground. We can't, can't keep all of them up cause you can't fly. Um, yeah. So it was like frostbite in a couple minutes if you're not bundled up. So yeah, it's cold. I'm just denying it. It's just really, really, really cold. That's all. I mean, that's all I got. It's just super cold. I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. <laughs> and, and here's what I would say about that. You're actually
0: well acquainted with the cold, both by like where you grew up and where you live mm-hmm. now. So, yeah, that's kind of like a high level denial in the sense that if you're saying it's too cold, yeah, then loved ones, if you're like you have average exposure to the cold, if you live on the West Coast, somewhere in the lovely southern part of the hemisphere these days where it's summer, then uh, man, this is like I don't know if you can conceive of this kind of cold. Like when it's, when it hurts your face right away, like for no reason, like no wind per se, you just walk outside, you feel like you've been assaulted by the yeah. air. That's a different kind of cold.
1: Oh yeah. You walk outside and you immediately have like a sinus headache from the air temperature ch- difference between the air coming into your body and your body temperature. Yeah. It's, it's bad. It's cold. Yeah. It's even it's the totally car. I went thing. to start the car this morning. It was like, <laughs> like even the car is like, it's cold. <laughs> it's really cold. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's all I got. I mean, there's no more to say about it. I could say it's cold a bunch more, but that's, that's the whole thing. That's, that's it. That's the denial. It's cold. It's too cold. No,
0: that's listen. That's pretty good. And again, that's one of those things where like, you know, I think you're seasons guy, right? Like you appreciate the seasons Oh yeah, and you you want to have the seasons, right?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I like to have differences and changes in the temperature and the weather. And I don't mind cold. I mean, I, when I was, I would watch the guy on the newscast put his uh, put his coffee on the thing and it freezes solid in two minutes. And then I would walk a quarter mile to school and it would be nothing. But it's just right now, it's just painfully cold. It's just bad. Yeah, it's too it's too cold.
0: I'm with you. It's like, it's nice to have those things. I For me, there's like this, here's a little insight is I have this feeling, I can't describe it. I want to somehow come to a place where I can articulate it. But I've just told my wife the other night, I walked outside to put, take out the trash. And I said to her, I came back in and it was cold and you felt it. And there's something for me, I have a pleasant memory of like cold going right through you. So like the sense where you walk outside, it goes right through your shirt and you feel like, wow, this is cold. And yet at the same time, there's something beautiful about it. I mean, you look up, the sky is clear. Yeah, there's like it's a really, really yeah, it was like a really deep crisis. And this is going to sound crazy to people who maybe live in a part of the world where you don't experience that kind of thing. But there is something special about it. I don't know. I find it. really lovely. But then of course it can easily that wherever that line is, you cross just a little bit over that line. And then you're like, Oh my goodness. I just want to get inside right now. I can't think about anything else except how I'm freezing.
1: Yeah. Like there's that, like there's that measuring point where all of a sudden you're like, is it worth it to just have the dog pee on the floor instead of going outside? (laughs) Like those are real questions that go through my head when it's this cold. But yeah, you're right. Like there is a certain level of coldness. It's for me, it's probably like 15 degrees. I think is like when you walk outside and you like it's it's refreshingly cold. You know you can't stay out there for very long, but it's cold enough that there's not a lot of animals running around. The air is still because it's just like it's cold, so the air molecules are not moving around as much as when it's hot. Yeah, I, I totally get that. It's cold enough that there's no clouds because the the water right. vapor right. like it can't stay exactly. in the air. But yeah, but then you get to like you get to like that zero point. And you're like, okay, this is uncomfortable, and then you go down another 15 degrees, and then that's where you are now. And and it's not good. Like yeah, you can like, feel that the nose hairs in your nose. Yes, start that's to what freeze. I was going to say. That's, that's the not very good. thing I was going to say. That's not good. No, that's not that's good. That's a unique
0: experience. Everybody should have that experience. Well, here's the thing. You knew that this was going to happen to some extent, because we kind of talked about it. I was going to declare an audible for my denial. And now I'm, I, you just got me. You got me in this cold <laughs> thing. So I'm, I'm going to just like piggyback on that. But here's my denial. It's kind of a different flavor from what you're saying. And that is, so even where I live, it gets cold. And people still, just like me, love to do their outside activities, even when it's cold. So I'm denying against those, though, who wear that like a badge and kind of get a little bit too much pleasure in being like, oh, I went for a walk or run or bike ride and it was four degrees and I wore shorts. I don't care. That's great for you. Like you're already outside doing your thing. We know you're tough. You don't need to take pictures of yourself with your eyelashes (laughs) covered in ice or your beard totally cloaked over by all kinds of ice. Like we get it. You're the man you're the woman good for you that's fantastic <laughs> and just, get off
1: my lawn <laughs>
0: just get, yeah, Just go ahead just go ahead and enjoy it now i'm sure that covers many many different things in life but i've been noticing that a little bit recently where like because it's again it's one thing so i'm just going to pick on runners in particular it's it's one thing you want to go outside you want to run in the cold i run in the cold but here's the thing i wear pants people because yeah. like it's cold but I, I know I have several good friends who, like, their thing is they never wear pants. Well, I mean, sorry. They never, they always <laughs> wear shorts.
1: <laughs> I feel like that might be your thing, Jesse, that you never wear pants. Listen, it's I mean, it's cold enough right now that I'm wearing pants while I'm podcasting, which is not not typical.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that, again, this speaks to what we're talking about here. But But there's just no need for that. Like, at some point, I want to be like, listen, it's okay. Like, you can just put on some nice, comfortable pants. I'm telling yeah. you. Being outside here and running is still like its own reward. You you don't have to prove anything to anybody. We're not going to think less of you if you're like, it's just too cold. I couldn't wear the shorts. It's it's okay. So I'm just denying against that kind of like, whatever that is, that vibe that's kind of like, oh man, I've just got to show people that I can be out here doing this like major intense thing when it's like already intense. It's okay. Just take it yeah. down a notch.
1: I actually think less of people when I see them running outside in shorts in ridiculous <laughs> temperatures. I, I have like this this unsanctified part of my heart that's like, all right, Pharisee, we all see you, we all see you. My Pharisee. my acknowledgement of your lack of pants and your shorts in sub zero weather. That's the only reward you're gonna get for this. That's, that's true. My, yeah,
0: that's true. It's a bit like do your running in private with your legs covered, and you know what I mean, like. <laughs> I, but that, isn't that the thing? Kind of is you want to be like, listen, like, I, I mean, it's possible people have, there are people with super hot legs. And they just need them to be exposed no matter what the temperature. I mean, I don't want to discount that. Like, maybe there's a good reason. There's a medical reason. But I, I do have a couple of friends who like their jam is, and I was have a hard time about this. Their jam is, oh, I wear shorts like all year long. And I'm like, that's great. There's no award for that. Like it's a trophy. No, Nobody here is like, yes, you are a much better person.
1: And it's like, maybe you us. should see a doctor because you have too many, you like your vasculature and your legs is too good. If you, if you don't need pants in subzero weather, like maybe you have too much blood flow to your lower extremities.
0: Yeah. It just, it just doesn't make any, it just doesn't make any sense because you know, yeah, at man. the end of a nice run that those people generally are always like, oh man, I got to go. I'm so cold. I'd be like, yeah, cause you're not wearing pants and you stopped moving. Like <laughs> that's not, that's not altogether good for you. Just so you know, like, it's so true. It just, it just cracks me up. So the cold cuts us both
1: ways. It's true. Well, speaking of essence and energies, uh, we're going to just jam our topic directly into <laughs> gear here because I, I want to get started on it because it's this is a topic that I think uh, lies under a lot of the debates and discussions that have been going on in the arena of theology proper. So th- these this element of the EFS controversy and more recently the divine simplicity controversy that James White seems to be heading up the opposition forces on. Um, I'm just going to say it. I don't think he's a heretic. I don't think he's not a Christian. I just want to say that because I don't want to end up being said on his show that I think he's a heretic. I don't think he's a heretic. But uh, there's this there's this underlying um, theological issue that wasn't as much in the forefront when we did the theology proper stuff before, right. and now since has become more in the forefront, um, and really, I think, bears some explaining. So I wanted to talk about something that is that is variously called the essence energy uh, distinction. Sometimes you hear it talked about as ad extra versus ad intro, which we did talk about a little bit, but in a different, sort of a different context. Right. Maybe you hear it talking about the imminent trinity versus the economic trinity, or as, as contrasted with the economic Trinity but the 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 core of what we're getting at is there's God and who and what God is in himself apart from any sort of re- revelation or action there's just God what what God is and then there's what God does who God who God is and what God does and one of the things that we'll see as we unpack this a little bit is the the major controversy point and one of the major, I think, errors that's being made in both the EFS controversy and then more recently in this divine simplicity controversy that is going on uh, in certain Reformed Baptist circles primarily, um, the essence, energy, ad extra, ad intra, God, God's being, God's works, That those that dichotomy is really foundational to understanding what's going on with these. So we wanted to backtrack just a little bit and sort of put in another entry in our fundamental series on this distinction that I think is really important.
0: Yeah, that's good. I, and I like the timing on this because I do think this is one of those things where on the face you might be even hearing us speak about and say, like, what's the big deal or Why? Maybe you actually never heard that there's like a distinction between these two, or or let's say this way that some have made a distinction between these two, but like this is fundamental. And I think what it might be helpful for our listeners to hear is almost like the other side of this. So they can hear how this might come across as compelling at first or on the face, because if you just find it on the internet, you might be like, okay, I think I can get down with that. But getting down with that is getting dangerous.
1: Yes. Yeah. So most recently, this is not intended to be a response episode to James White. It, he he made some comments on a recent dividing line that I think brings the issue to the forefront. And I don't have the quotes in front of me, so I'm not quoting him verbatim. But he made some comments on a recent dividing line episode where he was reviewing and, and critiquing some of Dr. James Dalazal's work that I think reveals actually what the issue is. So he he was talking about the controversy that's going on about whether God's essence, his his Attributes are identical to his essence, and therefore right. identical to each other. And so, what we would say, classically speaking, um, and this has been—I I, don't—I I know that he disagrees with this, and I don't really care. But the historical position, the historical majority report, throughout the history of the church, well before Thomas Aquinas, and going on consistently after Thomas Aquinas. He Aquinas did articulate this in, I think, a bit of a unique way and he put some force to it that was compelling and was picked up by later scholastics. But the the classical position is that when we look at when we we talk about God and we think about God in his in his very essence. Right, and, and we acknowledge, like I'll admit, we're having to draw conclusions based on what the scripture says and, and what we believe are logical and necessary inferences from the data that's explicitly present in scripture. But if we look at the scripture and we come to the conclusion that God is not composed of subcomponent parts, he's not divided in his being, his being is one single simple thing. And that is God, that there's no there's no degrees of variation or there's no composition, there's no amalgamation within God. It's, you simply have God and all that is in God, and in fact, is God. Well, then what necessarily follows from that is that we can't have righteousness, the righteousness of God and the love of God actually being two different things. Because if they're right. two different things, whether we want to explicitly say that the, they're, they're components or, or that God is composed of these things or not, now we still have God is righteousness. Not, not God is righteous, but God is righteousness. Not God is loving, but God is love. Well, we can't say that God is righteousness entirely. God is entirely righteousness. And God is entirely love and not now have two things that are in fact God. And so the way that we resolve that contradiction is we say that God's righteousness is in fact, in the very being of God, is in fact the same exact thing. And that thing is God. So, right. so we're not saying that um, God is righteousness means one thing and God is love means another thing. What we're really saying is that God is God. That, that's what we're saying. That's the statement that we're making. It's tautological on purpose, but then now we have to talk about God in ways that are actually coherent and meaningful. And so so Dr. White in critiquing Dr. Dalazal's work makes the point that if we look at God and our perception and our understanding that we derive from scripture allows us to make distinctions, God reveals himself as love, God reveals himself as righteousness. And in that revelation, those are different things. And we acknowledge that. In the Bible, to be righteous is not the same thing. As being loving now being loving and being righteous they're mutually inclusive activities or mutually inclusive attributes for God's people but when we think about what it is to be loving and we think about what it is to be righteous or to be um, merciful or to be good or to be whatever whatever we're talking about those are different things in the creature. Well, the issue at hand is that Dr. White says that if we look at God and see that God is loving on the one hand in this passage, and we look at God and God is righteous on the other hand on this passage, then it, it doesn't follow and it can't follow. It's actually contradictory to Revelation that in God himself, in eternity past, in, in his very being, that those are one and the same thing. He makes, he makes sort of a side argument that that means that God does not actually reveal himself because he reveals himself as though love is one thing in God and righteousness right. is another thing in God. But in actuality in God, those are actually one and the same thing. It's his very essence. So that's, that's the argument that is contrary to this essence-energies division, right? And so the, the classic formulation of this, I shouldn't say classic, the most prominent formulation of this is something called Rahner's Rule, which argues that the the imminent trinity is the economic trinity. So what God does in creation, what God does ad extra, is in fact identical with who God is ad intra. There's no difference or distinction between those two things. Well, the historical tradition has recognized that there's a lot of problems that obtain with that. There's a lot of issues that come about if we draw too close of an association and refuse to recognize that there are certain features of God that were revealed to us that, in fact, if we push those back into the very being of God, cause problems for our theology proper. The most right. obvious example, if you ask me, is that in, in the way that the, the three persons of the Trinity are revealed in their external activities, they're separate persons. <laughs> they're, they're not, the, the idea that God is one in being is not, is not clearly represented in the ad extra activity of the Trinity. What we have to do is we have to draw conclusions from what we see in scripture to get to the idea that God is one in being in eternity past, in his very essence. But if we just say that the external Trinity, as it's represented to our senses, as it's represented to us in, in Revelation, is the exact same thing and in an exact same way, then we run into problems not only for our theology proper, but for the Trinity itself. Right. So, So that's what we want to talk about is what is this distinction and what's the importance and how does it... More importantly, I think, than just what does this mean, what is this on a technical level, how does this help us to understand and to avoid some of the pitfalls that we have called out as dangerous in most, especially the EFS guys? But now I think there's some dangerous implications that are happening in Dr. White's theology, too. How does this understanding of the ad intra works of God or the ad intra operations of God, the ad extra or the imminent trinity versus the economic trinity or the essences versus the energies? How does how does this distinction help us to navigate actually some of those pitfalls that, that I think some of these, let's just say it, like these Reformed Baptist guys that are trying to, I think they're trying to understand the Bible faithfully. They're trying to push back against what they see as Um, a departure from Sola Scriptura, I think they have the best motives in mind, but there's some dangerous things that are happening. How does this distinction help us to avoid those pitfalls?
0: And for some of us, this may just be a matter of becoming aware that this conversation is happening and then how to understand and approach it. Or maybe that gotten the idea of essence and energies wasn't something previously on the radar. That's okay. It might be like a part of your theological attic that it's there and you go up there and say, oh, that's right. Here it is again. I think it does need to be brought out into the light a little bit, dusted off, just so we get a sense for what we're all talking about. So I sometimes sort of say something like this like, God is known through his essence, but through his, or sorry, not known through his essence, but like through his effects and his names by which right. he reveals his virtues to us. I think what's funny is some would look at that and say they would cry foul on that right away right this and this is why it it does require a little bit of additional processing and thought because that's actually like that statement I would say is actually like a consistent theme among the reformed theologians like almost throughout right. time because there's a general skepticism about the usefulness or legitimacy of metaphysical speculation apart from divine revelation. And that sounds super fancy, but that's all we're saying is that like, the way that we know God is the way that we know God and God only really knows God himself truly. So there is a radical distinction or like dare I say, discontinuity between what's created and uncreated nature so that there's no analogy whatsoever between God's nature and the nature of creatures. Because of such of this radical discontinuity, it would, Really, be futile to attempt as created beings to penetrate into the depths of the whatness of God's essence. Right, that's like the thing you and I come up with all the time, or come against all the time, right? Like when we were doing the theology proper series, we kept saying like we're going to use words now because that's what we have, and so we're not going to get to the true whatness. We're going to be like dancing around that whatness, and sometimes at great distance from the center. And Calvin. Was like really good on this. I mean, he made this explicit distinction all the time between nature and essence in his writings, which really he typically used the term nature to mean what can be known about God. So I'm not saying like the reformers or us deny that knowledge of God's nature can be gained through his works, but that knowledge, I think what you're saying is that knowledge is still only analogous at best. And we really need to accept, understand, and respect that distinction. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Michael Horton here, N- not only because I think Dr. Horton approaches this in a really meaningful way, but because in my conversations in the last week, uh, there's been some misunderstandings, I think, of what Dr. Horton is saying because this distinction between essence and energy, as Dr. Horton uses it. Um, I would actually say a better way to talk about it is between archetypal theology and ectypal theology. So archetypal theology is God's, God's theology about himself. It's the original knowledge of God, the the original knowledge. That's where that arc, A-R-C in the beginning, Arche is the Greek word for beginning, right? And Arche, Halein, Hologos in the beginning was the word that Arche is the beginning. So the original source knowledge of God is God's own knowledge of himself. And then Ech, uh, Typical knowledge is that ek prefix is the out of knowledge, right? Ek is like exodus or exit, it's the knowledge that comes out of God and is given to us. It's the the knowledge that is following God's archetypal knowledge. I right. think that's a better distinction right. than the, the uh, essence energies distinction. And Horton uses that language too. But I think that's that's closer to the classical reform language that that most people be familiar with. The essence energy distinction is more of an Eastern Orthodoxy way to talk about it which Horton really likes that language, and I think there's some utility to it. But I want to read um, just a little bit out of his um, systematic theology here. It's out of The Christian Faith. This is the print edition. It's uh, on page 50. And he says, Knowing God as he is in himself—and the emphasis is present in Horton—knowing God as he is in himself— was the familiar refrain of mystics and other enthusiasts of all ages. But God's incomprehensible majesty is damning rather than saving. God cannot be directly known by our climbing the scale of being, but can only be known in and through the mediator. So what he's saying there is that we don't have access as creatures, even as, as unfallen creatures in the garden, Adam didn't have direct immediate access to the infinite, perfect, eternal, simple being of God. Right? That, that's just not the. It's not the kind of knowledge that creatures can have, even in a perfect unfallen state. We didn't have it in the garden in Adam. We don't have it now as fallen, sinful creatures, and we're not going to have it in eternity future when we're restored to all things. We'll have a perfect creaturely knowledge of God, but we will never have a perfect uncreaturely knowledge of God because we are, in right. fact, creatures, and we always will be creatures. So that's really important. And then he says... Uh, On the following page on page 51, while a theology of glory presumes to scale the walls of God's heavenly chamber, a theology of the cross will always recognize that although we cannot reach God, he can reach us and has done so in his preached and written word in which the incarnate word is wrapped in swaddling cloths. So Horton has a very particularly Christocentric take on this. I think we actually can go a little bit further than the, the really strict, we only know God through the mediator because the Bible says we also know God through creation, through his works right. through, and the Bible, the Bible has as a central focus and chief aim, uh, the glory of God, particularly in the redemptive of man, redemp- redemption of man by Christ. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing that the scripture talks about. So I think, I think Horton unnecessarily narrows this down on just the incarnation and just the mediator. That said, I think he's very helpful on this. And I want to go over, too, because this is most clearly uh, seen kind of in the patristic fathers is sort of where you see a lot of this language take its initial form. And so Horton continues on um, the bottom of page 51 going into page fifty. Uh, two, he says, the reformers' insistence on God's incomprehensible majesty had clear precedent in the early church, especially in the East. For example, after exploring various divine attributes, right? So this is directly applicable to the conversation we're having in reference to what's going on with some of the things Dr. white has been talking about. For example, in exploring various divine attributes, Gregory of Nyssa cautions, quote, but in each of these terms... We find a peculiar sense fit to be understood or asserted of the divine nature, yet not expressing that which the nature is in its essence. God's essence, and this is, again, Horton, God's essence remains hidden to us, but his energies, that is, workings or operations, are revealed. Gregory's brother Basil argued, quote, The energies are various and the essence is simple. But we say that we know our God from his energies, but do not undertake to approach near to his essence. His energies come down to us, but his essence remains out of our reach. And then this is particularly important with the EFS guys. This is again Horton following that quote. These arguments were directed, especially against the Platonists, like the Arian Eunomius, who insisted that we can know God as he is in himself, that is in his essence. So, so what we're seeing here in Horton is directly applicable to the conversations we've had about the EFS guys and about now the stuff going on with Dr. White is that both of the um, errors that are going on, the EFS more gravely than uh, what's going on with Dr. White's commentary. And I actually think, you know, he's investigating the sources. So I I hope that he's going to investigate the sources and is going to come to a more historic, I think a more uh, thoroughly biblical and thoroughly reformed position. But we talked a lot about how one of the issues with Dr. Strahan's theology is that he's equating what we see of God in the economy, particularly in the incarnation, what we see of that, he's equating that far too closely and too directly with what we know about God in eternity past. So he had that passage where he talked about how what Christ is, what the son is in the incarnation, he always was in eternity past. Well, I went through a bunch of examples of, of where that's just plainly false. But that's what, that's what we're getting at. And that's part of, uh, just as a side note, that's part of why we're calling the EFS position an Aryan position is because they're making the same exact error of too closely equating the economy of salvation with the uh, internal workings of the Trinity in eternity past. And even Dr. Horton right. here is saying, well, when this essence energy distinction, this distinction between God, who God is in himself and what God does outside of Himself. The the equation of those things too closely and without proper distinctions is exactly the error that the Eunomian Arians were making in the fourth century and what the Nicene fathers were, were rejecting and what they were employing this distinction to rebuke. They were also doing the same thing about people who were sort of bringing God down to a creaturely level by saying, because God... Uh, reveals himself as having all these various attributes, therefore God must be divided in his being between his love and his omnipotence and his omniscience. Those things must be actually different things in God. Otherwise, how could God reveal himself to us that way if it's not actually true? Well, that's exactly the argument, and, and it's, it's tough. I know there's going to be a bunch of people that write me and say, Dr. White never said this. He didn't say this explicitly. One of the things that's happening because of the nature of Dr. White's show, he's not primarily making positive statements. He's primarily reacting to statements that others are are making and rejecting those statements. I think that a rejection of these statements necessarily entails an affirmation of the converse. Right. Some people think there are other options that I don't I don't recognize as valid options, but 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 to say this is that Dr. White is arguing in a certain way and in a roundabout way that God's attributes are not the same thing in eternity past or in God's self, you can tell how influenced I am by talking about EFS. I keep on going back to the eternity past thing. God's attributes being identical with each other is a thesis that Dr. White rejects. He explicitly rejects it on, his, on, on this episode I'm talking about. That necessarily means, in my opinion, that the attributes are different from each other. If they're not identical with each other, they are necessarily not identical with each other. So, so this essence energy distinction and getting it wrong too closely equating god's essence with his energies or his energies with his essence, too closely reading what we understand as a result of the essences, to mirror directly or to map directly onto god's essence is at the root of both of these problems. So that's why this is important. And I'm going to take a breath here, take a drink of my beer and breathe for a second, <laughs> but I want to I want to take us now once once we've had a chance to sort of like debrief on what I just said, I want to take us to the part in Dr. Horton's theology and his systematic theology where he actually talks about divine simplicity and is directly commenting on this because there are people who are looking at what he's saying. And I think because they're missing some of this essence energy distinction, they're misunderstanding what he's saying. It's also possible that Dr. Horton's just not particularly clear here. Wouldn't be the first time it's happened that he said something that wasn't clear, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think Horton is particularly good on this topic, actually. I, yeah. I
0: think what he maybe gives up by being narrow and trying to apply this almost exclusively to our Savior. he's doing so, of course, with the best intentions to try to emphasize this distinction and that it's important. So while you looked that up, let me say this, as a way of trying to kind of summarize what you've said, but also maybe kind of just encapsulate it with some more brevity, I would say it this way, like all that we predicate of God, we necessarily predicate of the energies. Uh, th- their average Christian maybe is not understanding that's what they're doing, but this, this necessarily is what we're doing because of course, even if we look at this logically, our ability to understand is finite. So how can we apply that to something that is infinite by itself? Right. It's the same argument for language, which people are normally willing to give up, but it's also applied to our knowledge. So the en- these energies or the things around God highlighting their relationship to the essence are God, but they are not his essence. And how can we expect to understand that they were his essence? We we just can't comprehend that. They are God as he manifests himself to his creation. So I would even go as far to say this, and this might be very controversial. When we speak of God, we experience God, or we worship God, we're always speaking of experiencing or worshiping those energies. Like the goodness, power, holiness, all the other attributes that God is said to be able to communicate to his creatures in a limited way would be understood as God's energies. We have this direct, univocal knowledge of the energies, but the energies themselves, as I keep saying, these are only analogies of the same properties of the essence. And the essence is something that's just still f- too far beyond us it's a bridge too far to build that we cannot cross like how do you want to say that yeah there again is a kindness in god in demonstrating his energies but we get too much conflation if we've never really thought about these and so those that are now bringing these to the forward and saying no these are one and the same you have to cry foul because you, w- you know, in some ways you want to say like listen you brought it up or it's been brought up again and so we're just going to say like these are not the same things
1: yeah yeah and you know it bears saying um I've commented on this before. I think I, I commented a little bit last week that we we sometimes do this, where we, in our zeal to um, express how mainstream reformed a particular position is, we neglect to acknowledge that there are, there are things said and done by respected theologians that are not mainstream, right? So right. Um, Gerhardus Voss, in his Reformed Dogmatics, Uh, Make some statements about the attributes of God and how they are not identical with each other. Now, I actually think that a contextual reading, not only the immediate text, the immediate context of that mitigates against this proving Dr. White's rejection, I guess, uh, but also like understanding what was going on in Voss's world. Mitigates against this being, you know, him saying the same thing as what what Dr. White is saying. Charles Hodge explicitly rejects the idea that God's essence or God's attributes are identical with each other. Right. So we should be clearer than sometimes I think we are in saying Because we're saying this is the mainstream position or this is the classical position, we're not saying, no one is ever saying, no one in the history of the church has said something different. Um, And as long as it's not a heretical doctrine, we can say it's a very dangerous position to be taking. I think the way that Hodge approaches it is a dangerous thing to do. I think the way that Voss approaches it is a dangerous thing to do. Um, I think that in some senses, the way that Horton approaches it, because I think the writing is not as clear as it could be, leads to some dangerous conclusions, potentially, if the, if the reader's not careful. But that's not to say there have never been anyone through the, in the history of the Reformed Church who, who says God's essence and his attributes are not identical with each other. There have been people right. who say that. They're wrong. I think they're wrong. Uh, I think that I can prove they're wrong, and I think that they, I can prove that they're a minority uh, within the Reformed tradition— but that doesn't mean they don't exist. So I wanted to say that just sort of to get that out there because I don't want people to think we're saying like no one has ever said this because that's just not true. But I want to I want to turn back to Horton. So this is coming out of Chapter Six of the Christian Faith, which is uh, starts on page two twenty three, and mind you, this is how Horton starts his chapter on the incommunicable attributes. So, I think we should read the word incommunicable in two ways, right? Incommunicable, meaning that the attributes cannot be communicated to us, meaning we do not share them with God, but also incommunicable, as in incommunicatable, right? We can't even really express or understand what these mean in God because we cannot share them with God. So that incommunicable attributes has both of those connotations and we need to understand it. So this is what he says, opening his chapter on the incommunicable attributes. He says, we have seen that Christians... Uh, Christian orthodoxy has been wary of speculating concerning God's inner essence, focusing instead on God's characteristics as they have been revealed to us by God in his works, especially in scripture, through the unfolding economy of the covenant of grace. Right? So he's, he's starting out his discussion on the, on the incommunicable attributes by saying, we're not talking about God's essence. When we talk about these incommunicable attributes, we, we are focusing almost exclusively on on what God has revealed and revealed to us through His works—that is to say, we are drawing our theology through what God has revealed to us in His created energies, what He has done in creation—and so this is where this is where I think some of the conversation is going sideways. And so, uh, if you turn to uh, page two twenty-eight, he starts to talk about divine simplicity. And I'm going to read a rather lengthy section here because I think it's important to get the context. So this is starting on 228. He says, As human beings, we are complex and compound creatures. That is, we are made up of various parts. However, God is simple and spiritual. On the one hand, this means that God is not the sum total of his attributes, but is simultaneously everything that all of the attributes reveal. On the other hand, each of these attributes identifies a different aspect of God's existence and character that cannot be reduced to others. So just on face value, that sounds very much like what Dr. White is saying, right? It sounds very much like saying God's attributes in God are not actually distinct from each other, are actually distinct from each other. In God, righteousness is one thing and love is another thing. And, and somehow that doesn't constitute God being composed of parts. He goes on to say this later point is especially important given the tendency of recent critics to identify this doctrine with an extreme view that denies any real difference between the attributes. So again, it sounds very much like Dr. White or Dr. Horton here is agreeing with Dr. White. One implication is that we cannot rank God's attributes or make one more essential to God than another. God is love even when he judges. He is holy and righteous even even in saving sinners. He is eternal even when he acts in time. And then here's where I think a contextual reading actually shows that Horton is going a different direction than it at first seems. This is why I say he's not particularly clear. He says, we may recall the distinction between God's essence and God's energies. The sun is one substance with many and various rays. In Basil's expression, quote, the energies are various and the essence is simple, but we say that we know our God from his energies, but do not undertake to approach near to his essences. His essence. His energies come down to us, but his essence remains beyond our reach. End quote. God's simplicity is in no way limits the diversity evident in his works, but stipulates that in all of God's activity he is self-consistent. In every act, God is the being that he is and will ever be. Right? So so even just in those one, two, three, three paragraphs it's clear that although Horton says something that very much sounds like in God, in the essence of God, the attributes are really improperly distinct from each other. But if you just, what do I always say, Jesse? Just read a little bit more. If you just read a little bit more, Horton is clearly saying, no, no, we're talking about his activity. We're talking about how he reveals himself in his activities. So even even though his activities seem to say that his attributes are diverse and distinct from each other, we're not even trying to approach the substance. We're not trying to approach the divine essence. And that Basil quote is really important. Or his preface to the Basil quote, the sun is one substance with many and various rays. When Horton is talking about the attributes of God, he he's going back and forth between talking about attributes in say, or in God himself, and attributes right. ad extra right? He's going back and forth. That's why I say it's not particularly clear. But he's talking about the sun is analogous to God's being, and the rays that come out from it are analogous to his works, his energies. So Horton is drawing this distinction to say, well, God reveals himself to us in his energies, just like the sun none of us has, none of us have ever directly experienced the sun, right? None of us have. We've experienced the emanations of the sun, the rays of the sun, the, the photons and the energy that the sun shoots out from it. That's what we experience. None of us has ever touched the sun directly, right? That's what we're talking about here. And so I want to read, now that I've read that from his big systematic theology, I want to read it from the one where he tries to distill that a little bit more down for a little bit more of a, a lower level reader, we need some Jeopardy music while I pick up the books <laughs> off the ground cuz they're only in desk space. So That was great. Horton also wrote a book called Pilgrim Theology, which is a a it's another great. single volume systematic theology. The Christian Faith is probably written with first-year seminary students in mind. It's what you use to work through systematic theology 1, 2, and 3 in a in a seminary setting. Pilgrim Theology is a book that's designed to be used for like a freshman intro to theology course at Bible college. So it's a different level of technicality. So here's what he says in in this, and I'm going to read the entire section on simplicity just because it's, it's short enough to do that. He says, this is on page 74 in the print edition, simple means undivided and indivisible, not complex or made up of different things. For example, a jacket made entirely out of wool is simple in its fabric. While one composed of different fibers is complex. To say that God is simple is to say, first of all, that he is pure spirit. We are made up of different parts. Not only are we composed of spiritual and physical aspects, but even our souls and bodies are complex. The soul has capacity for thinking, desiring, and willing, and the body is composed of a host of different parts. However, God is not composed of different faculties or parts. One of the implications, this is on the top of page 75, one of the important implications of divine simplicity is that God's attributes are not literally different aspects of God's essence, but various descriptions of God's unified being. So that's, that's what we're talking about, right? right. The, this, this section goes on and he, he covers a lot of the same ground. He quotes the same quotes out of the Cappadocian Fathers. That's what we're talking about, is that when we talk about God, we are necessarily talking in created categories not uncreated categories. We can't talk in uncreated categories. And so we have to draw this distinction between who God is in himself and what God reveals to us through the way he works towards creation. If we miss that, then we go down this road of EFS where the, the, the created activity of the Trinity, and I just, when I say created activity of the Trinity, all I mean is the activity that God does as a result of creation, either in creating or into creation. Right. If we closely associate those such that we make them the same thing, we end up with this weird tritheistic hierarchy of different entities, some of whom have uh, authority over others and some of whom are subordinate to others. If we if we impose the way that God has revealed himself too closely onto the divine nature in its essence, then we end up with this composite being where part of that being is is love, and part of that being is righteousness. And although we might say you can't rank those, we do rank them, right? I was having this conversation online and somebody responded with the classical R.C. Sproul quote, that holiness is the chief attribute of God and all other attributes are to be understood in light of holiness because God only ever calls himself holy, holy, holy. He never calls himself love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Well, what that does is it it makes... uh, holiness to be something different than love in God. But in God, holiness is the same thing to be loving, to be right. love. God's holiness is in utterly loving holiness, and God's love is an utterly holy love. So we, if we too closely associate the essences and the energies or the archetypal knowledge that God has with the archetypal reality of, of things that we see. If we too closely associate those and collapse them in on each other, that's where we start to get these errors. And most of the quotes that are coming out of people like James White or the ones that are coming out of Owen Strahan or Wayne Grudem that aren't just flat out, straight out abuses of the original text, but are some sort of good faith attempt to understand them. Most of them, if you properly understand what the author holds as a presupposition about the essence energy distinction, the, the issue goes away. Sometimes it's still a little tricky, like Voss, Voss is, is a 19th century theologian who's deeply influenced by rationalism and modernism, and it shows, like it shows that that's the milieu that he's in. But if you really understand what he holds about essences and energy, then you see that what he's saying about attributes has to do with how God reveals himself to us, not who he is and how he is in his very being. And contrary to James White, that distinction is not only not contradictory, it's necessary. We cannot comprehend God as he is in his being. We can't do it. It's not possible. So it's not God lying to us when he reveals himself uh, under undercreated language as though he is actually of a diversity of attributes any more than it's God lying to us when he tells us that he snorts like a bull when he's mad or that he saves us with his strong right arm. Those, Those two things are both analogies that we use to talk about God. It's an analogy for us to talk about God as though he is a diversity of attributes like we are, right? It's an anthropomorphism. We're talking about God's diverse attributes as though he was a man who has diverse attributes that compose his being. Even though we affirm that God is not like a man and he does not have diverse attributes that compose his being. It's an analogy, not a lie. All right, I took a breath. I just want to <laughs> that, say before I let you it. jump in, I, I don't normally do this because this is not the Reform podcast, but this beer that I'm drinking is probably the most delicious beer that I've had. It's called uh, Dragon Milk. And it's the 2021 Reserve Three. I guess there's a bunch of different reserves. And it tastes like a s'more. Like it really wow. tastes like a s'more. It's delicious. That sounds amazing. I'm going to finish this while you say some good stuff. That sounds amazing. There's nothing left to be said, I think. I mean, that was a great
0: summary. I mean, that really is like, excuse the pun, like the essence of what we're talking about here. I hope that, like, here's what I would say to people there was a lot that was just said there. Go back, you're reasonable people, process it for yourselves understand what it means to try to distinguish between God's essence and his energies. And we can have a lot more conversation about the practicality of that. I think you've touched on so much of that already. People can see the inroads into how this changes our behavior and our thoughts. And that's why it's really, really worth processing. But at least now, you know,
1: and knowing's half the battle. GI Joe. It's true. I mean, this, this is, this is one of those things that actually, until Christians, let, let me put it this way. It's only when you start to overthink things that this becomes a problem, right? Instinctively, Christians understand that that not just God, but a person is not reduced to what they do. Like, like there are things that I do that are inconsistent with my being, right? Right. Um. You know, like there, like. I do things that are dangerous. I eat things that aren't healthy for me. That's inconsistent with my being, with my essence, which has built into it a survival instinct, right? So that's an example where it's clear that like what Tony does is not synonymous with who Tony is. There are there are uh, inconsistencies. Where, where it becomes a challenge is that we don't ever want to say that God is inconsistent with himself, except in the fact that that even God cannot reveal himself to creatures except in creaturely language, of course, creaturely right. ways. Right. And so God has to be in a certain sense, and hear me clearly when I say this, God has to be inconsistent with the reality of, of what he is in order to respond and to react or to reveal himself to creatures, right? It's like the analogy we used when we were talking about some of this stuff before. A four-dimensional being or a three-dimensional being has to be inconsistent with his three-dimensional nature if he wants to reveal himself accurately to a two-dimensional creature, right? That's the C.S. Lewis analogy that a a three-dimensional being passing into a two-dimensional plane has to make certain accommodations, right? A sphere, certain elements of a sphere are circular, right? You could conceive of a sphere as a bunch of circles stacked up on top of each other one after another. But if a sphere is to be revealed in a two-dimensional fashion, there's a certain element of it that is uh, inconsistent with the sphere nature. That's the same thing that we're saying here. It's not that God lies. It's not that God is deceiving people. It's not that God is somehow, as a result of of a weakness in God, unable to reveal himself as he is. I'm going to read this just from the Westminster, just because they say it better than I ever could. This is from chapter seven of uh, Westminster Confession, and this is section one. The distance, and this is in mind the estate before the fall. So this is not a result of sin that this is true. The distance between God and the creature, the creature being Adam in this case, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator... Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So even before the fall, even in Adam's perfect estate of innocency, when he was created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, right? That knowledge, Adam had supernatural knowledge of who God is. He had direct, clear revelation and experience with God as he presented himself. Even Adam didn't have a direct experience with God's being. Right. Even Adam only saw the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, right? Well, how does the Lord walk? He doesn't have legs. <laughs> he doesn't have feet. He doesn't. He doesn't locomote across the garden like a man does. Yet that's how Adam experienced him. He experienced him as the Lord came in the cool of the day. Now that there's a whole different conversation about what that means, but Adam experienced God in an accommodated fashion because there's no other way that Adam could have experienced God. And so also when we look at scripture and we see God's mighty works of providence and creation, when we look at the works of creation and we exercise our, our rational faculties to understand God's omnipotence, his powerfulness, his intentionality, those things we can know apart from special revelation, Even those things are accommodated to our creatureliness, and they could never not be accommodated to our creatureliness. The essence-energy distinction is absolutely vital to protect us from going off the rails into some of these other errors, into EFS, where we too closely associate the external acts of the Trinity as though they reveal to us the essence and the reality of God's internal Relations in the Trinity, or we go off into these things where we start to conceptualize God as this somehow amalgamation or combination of attributes. Not that somehow they add up to create God or to contextualize God. Even if I'm being super over, I think overly charitable, but if they are somehow somehow distinct in God then we end up with something that ends us leading us down really dangerous paths. So I know this has been a little bit more of a technical episode. I know this has been pretty heavy on reading, reading a theology book to you out loud over the internet, but I, th- I think it's important because this is, this is a theological principle that, as I said, people just recognize that this is true. It takes a little bit of work to understand how it is true when we're talking about God, as opposed to how it is true when we're talking about creatures. But we recognize that it's true. It's only when we start to parse out some of the implications and ironically, and I'll I'll close with this, James White's primary criticism of the mainstream classically understood and received doctrine of divine simplicity. His main criticism is that it somehow pushes past what God has revealed And is speculating as to the internal workings of God. And I would actually retort to that and say, no, actually what it is, is it's a proper recognition that God's revelation is limited to his works toward us who is pushing past revelation and is improperly seeking to peer into the divine essence are those who would too closely associate God's ad extra works with his ad intra essence. Those are the people that are actually pushing past what God has revealed to us, both in scripture but also in how God reveals himself through nature. So I just think it's really really vital for us to get this and it was something, you know, had we had we thought about this, had I known that this was going to be a major talking point, I would have addressed this during the theology proper sequence. Um, But I just think it was too timely and too important given current discussions to really pass up.
0: This is what we're here for. This is our thing, to have reasonable conversation about these kind of current theological events as they're unfolding, and to provide at least for our brothers, and sisters something to think about? Again, you're all reasonable people, so go back to the scriptures, process it for yourselves, and hopefully this has been a foil for more conversation. That's what we hope at least.
1: Yeah, Jesse. I heard a rumor that we may have yeah. a question cast coming up soon.
0: That's true. There is a question cast coming. It's true. That's all. Next, I, that's all I'm going to say. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. It'll be going to happen. It's going to be
1: here in approximately seven days. Oh, is it? Yes, yes, that is actually true. I thought so.
0: I thought we were teasing this way more no, than giving this. No, physics. I
1: want people to hear it. I want them to know. I want them to be here. RSVP. Oh. Yes. To the question so cast. this
0: this does mean, technically speaking, that you still have time to get in your questions, and I'll let you it's in uh, behind the curtain. The inside baseball is: if your question is brief, succinct, articulate, and direct, it has a much greater percentage chance of making it. And only because that those are the ones that make for a lot better conversation for us to it's talk true. about. So if you have one of those. Tony, what is the number that people should call
1: to leave that question for us? Oh man, it's 607-444-2767. Well <laughs> Rose, I think well that's done. right. If yeah, you call that right. and you get someone else's voicemail, then please leave them your theological question, but don't expect a result, <laughs> a response. I'm glad <laughs> I, I didn't say six zero three. I usually start that with six zero three and then have to backtrack.
0: I would say no, I'm pretty sure that's right. Although now you now you're totally making me guess everything. <laughs> This has become very existential. Yeah, why don't you just it, tell me what the phone number is? Why don't, why don't you just tell me what your question is? Um, listen, we love to have people speak into the podcast, be part of the conversation. So please, if there's something on your mind, maybe you've listened to us Babylon for a long time, not just on this episode, but on lots of episodes. And you thought, you know what? Today's going to be the day that I finally call that number and leave a question. We would love for you to do that. So get in on this. Join us. And it's coming. So you got like a limited time. When you hear this, when this drops on a Friday, you've just got a limited amount of time because we got to put everything together. So please make that call right now. Stop the podcast, stop the podcast, call the number.
1: Yes. And if for some reason we do have lots of international listeners, if you are really, really invested in sending us a question and you are an international caller, then you can record in an MP3 format. Oh, for sure. Uh, and you can email that question to info at we would love yes. to get questions that way as well. And That's I was right about the for phone anybody. number. I was yes. correct. It was a guess, oh. but I got it right.
0: I trust you implicitly. Yeah, that, that, yes. I'm glad you said that. That offer stands for anybody if you'd rather just record yourself answering the question. The good thing about the voicemail is it constrains you. Just like the love it's of Christ true. constrains us, the time limit on the voicemail constrains our listeners who are sometimes, are always loving and, and very well-intentioned, but sometimes, just like us, a little
1: bit verbose. So... Just keep it keep it tight. Jesse, can I share a secret with you about why I love voicemails better than <laughs> better than transcribe or better than uh, recorded and email files? Uh, go ahead. Because every once in a while, we get a voicemail that is transcribed in the most hilarious possible way. That's we true. got a voicemail that was asking a question about Pedro baptism a little while back, <laughs> and I just had this image of Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite who had moved on from his class president uh, role and had become a Presbyterian elder and was Pedro baptizing an infant of some sort. Yeah, well,
0: and actually, you and I, that prompted a very, I I would say, like, serious discussion among the two of us where we both, I think, agreed we are pro-Pedro baptism, right? Yes. I think people named Pedro should be baptized. Yeah, like, it seems like that we were just...
1: Yeah, I also think that people named Pedro, if they're duly ordained, should also (laughs) perform baptisms. So well, I am not opposed to Pedro baptism at all.
0: Yeah, and well, this is where it got like inception. Like there were all these layers. Like, what if your your name is Pedro? You are you, know, you again, you are Mister in the Presbyterian Church in particular, and there are tiny Pedros whom you yeah. also want to baptize. I, I think Pedro's we just thought baptizing Pedros. Yeah, it's P squared. Like let it happen. De- it's de- true. Definitely all the time, every Lord's Day.
1: Well, I think that we have gone on about this long enough. Uh, just a quick reminder before we head out. We do currently have a contest going on. So if you want to go to ReformBrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash two seven four, you can enter a copy, enter to win a copy of Adonis Vidu's new book, which is called uh, Divine Missions, which is oh, closely yeah. related to what we're talking about today, but also distinct. Uh, much like the essence <laughs> and energy <laughs> distinction, closely related but oh, also distinct. <laughs> and uh, you can check that out. It's a pretty standard contest module. But uh, lest I jump into any more inadvertent but awesome puns. Yeah, well. Until done. next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.